Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to What Goes Up, a weekly markets podcast. My name is Mike Regan. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. And I'm Valdana Hayek, a cross-asset reporter with Bloomberg. And this week on the show, well, is the proverbial Fed put dead? Or is the strike price just so low that it may as well be? That's the question on everyone's mind this week after Jerome Powell signaled that the recent volatility in the stock market will not be enough to force the central bank to amend its plans to raise interest rates and shrink its balance sheet. What does it mean for markets? We'll get into it with the chief investment officer of a firm that focuses on artificial intelligence. But first, uh, Vildana, t- two things I-, I have to tell you. Um, first of all, my crazy thing this week is custom made for you. So I, okay. I, I expect high, uh, big things from you on this. Secondly, condolences uh, to you. And Jeffrey Gundlach and all the other Buffalo Bills fans out there, I know this is this is a bad week, so bad that Valda- it's Valdana's turn to hide under a blanket during the podcast this week. And Valdana, I think if there were like a pure play company that makes folding tables, I, I would have shorted them this week. What do you think? Uh, yeah, it's it's a bad time for Buffalo Bills fans for all of Western New York. I was depressed on Sunday, on Monday. I'm depressed today. I don't know how I'm going to get through this answer, but thank you. I appreciate it. At least, at least everybody watched the game. It was like record numbers of people who watched it. And now everybody's discussing overtime rules for the NFL, which is, which is kind of cool. Yeah. But by everyone, you mean the the team that lost, the fans of the team that lost because of the overtime. Hey, I saw, I saw Larry (laughs) David was talking about it too. It it is a silly It was trending on Twitter. I don't yeah. know. They've already amended it once. So we'll see. We'll see. One one can hope. Maybe they'll they'll yeah. let them play that game over. But Fultana, I'm excited about this guest uh, this week. We haven't talked to him in a while. He's got a new firm he's involved with. Tell us about him. Bring him into the show here. Let's get this going. Yeah, it's Max Gockman. He's the chief investment officer at Alpha Trey. And Max, I want to welcome you back to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's awesome to be back. Yeah, Max, it's it's been a while, and I don't think I've talked to you since you've started this new gig. Um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna confess something here, Max. Whenever I hear someone talk about artificial investing, or, or pardon me, artificial intelligence in, in the investing world, you know what I do is I kind of nod my head and I and I stroke my chin as as if I know uh, what's going on. But just between us, don't let this get out. I really have no idea what they're talking about. I'm I'm hoping you can. Give us all your takes on the market in the show. But but first, let's get into that notion. What are you guys up to? What is sort of um, going on with AI-focused investing at the moment? What are the applications? And, and where do you see it going uh, in the future? And 
if you don't mind the the four dummies version i think it would probably be best for uh at least for me i don't know about Valdana. sure well i'm sure i'm sure Valdana would understand the intricacies of things like recursive neural networks and you know transformers but mike for, for you i'll uh dumb it down <laughs> i'm nodding bit. along yeah thank you i appreciate that so first of all it's really important to differentiate artificial intelligence from the broader quant ecosystem because a lot of folks know about quant funds systematic funds have trillions of dollars um you know systematic strategies have trillions of dollars under management ai as in true artificial intelligence is very rare and in fact that's why i left a, a pretty strong position to to join this uh, plucky startup to lead the, the new frontier. True artificial intelligence is really based on the concept of a neural network. And a neural network is kind of what it sounds like. It consists of neurons, just like your brain. And those neurons fire in different ways to process information, kind of the way a human mind processes it, but very differently from how a traditional systematic strategy processes it. The best way to think about it is your typical quantitative strategy, even if it uses machine learning, which is kind of part of that AI phraseology, but is not quite what we consider authentic AI, it has a formula. And that formula is designed to systematize a way of thinking or an economic theory. And then that formula has you know, a bunch of factors, and those factors have coefficients. And basically, the machine learning part will, at a high level, kind of adjust the coefficients. So that we think that value is going to do well, that will be a positive coefficient. We think value is going to do not so well. That could be a negative coefficient, right? But you're still basically making a decision in that example of, do we go long or short to value factor? A unsupervised deep learning network can actually create its own features. It can create its own view on what a factor is. It does not have to be this preconceived notion of, value, large, momentum, uh, quality, et cetera. And so that's a key thing about true AI strategies is they can adapt on their own without human intervention. They're also going to be unbiased. And, and this is something that I think a lot of times when people think about quant funds, they say, well, quant funds don't have uh, bias. And that's not quite true. They don't have emotion. As in a formula is a formula. It doesn't really care if the market's down 50% or up 20%, you know. But it will have a bias because it's based on, again, systematizing a way of thinking. That thinking is inherently biased, as, as I said, it was created by a human. An AI model actually does not have that bias in it if it's an authentic AI model. And that's something that I think is going to be even more important as we get into these markets, which we'll, of course, discuss where things are changing quite rapidly and we're going to see patterns emerge that we haven't seen before. You're going to need something that can adapt on its own and adapt quite quickly. And that is, to me, a key hallmark of authentic artificial intelligence. So before we get to talking about the market, Max, I really like always talking with you because you're up for talking about lots of different things, including cryptocurrencies. And I believe you guys are working on an AI program for a crypto fund. If you can tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So this is currently kind of our cutting edge R&D efforts that uh, we are working on. We're, we're, we think that AI and digital assets, and I, I, I want to go beyond just saying cryptocurrencies because I think that actually is a narrower universe. So and, and I know you like things like pudgy penguins, um, you know, and NFTs. So those are all tradable assets uh, within the digital asset ecosystem. 
And we think that AI is a natural way to analyze those assets and trade them in part because it's a brand new asset class. This is something that a lot of folks don't realize. I've seen a lot of traders who were good in currencies or good in cross-asset kind of jump into the crypto world, but they bring in those same concepts and they don't necessarily work in crypto space. Like for instance, a lot of resistance and support bands in, in, in the currency markets are based on actually central bank purchasers or uh, you know companies that are hedging their, their cost of goods. That doesn't exist in, in crypto. So you, when you see a supported resistance level, it's actually driven by different factors. When we think about AI as, as well, it really feeds on data, of course. Like that's, that's uh, something I probably should have said earlier, right? AI's source of brain food is data. The higher quality of the data, the smarter the AI will be able to be. And data on the blockchain is very clean and therefore highly nutritious to an artificial intelligence uh, engine. And addition to that, you have really low efficiencies in the market. So high quality data, low efficiency, and then sprinkle on top of that a really high volatility. That is kind of the most fertile, you know, a bowl, if you will, for, uh, for AI to drive alpha from. Um, in addition to that, you've got really unique parts within the crypto space, such as the actual code bases that um, a lot of these protocols are developed in. And those are things where, you know, one bit of code, reading another bit of code and making a decision on it and analyzing it is actually something that opens up even more doors. So we think there's a lot of really amazing opportunities. I can't talk about too much uh, on the specifics, but uh, next time I'm on, I hopefully will be able to share a lot more. But we do think that AI and digital assets are a perfect marriage. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, Max, let's bring it into the, the present tense uh, a little bit with what we saw this week uh, in the markets. And I'm curious how AI would work with sort of an event risk type of situation uh, like we saw this week with the Fed. I mean, I know there's been a lot of work done on sort of natural language processing and, and try to, you know, uh, have computers l listen or, or read text and, and, and make a decision based on that. Where is that in, in sort of the big scheme of things with, with AI? Is it still, you know, is that still a little too tricky to, to do? Is it something that they need sort of the, uh, you know, the, the organic intelligence of a guy like you to, to, to handle that end of it? I mean, you know, can, can AI listen to Jerome Powell and and pick up the nuances and, and, and that? Or is it just, you know, a matter of reacting to the market signals as he's speaking? It's a great question. And there's going to be different answers depending on who you talk to. I know on, on one end, uh, there's one fund that 
thinks they can actually train um, a camera. Well, they basically put a camera on Powell live and they try to deconstruct the nuance of his physical body language and the nuance of his speech inflections no way, to figure really? out what he's doing. Yeah. Now, I, 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 they, when I asked him how well that worked, they kind of got quiet. So um, <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. Well, Powell's um, got a pretty good poker face, so he might not he, be the he, best. Uh, he's killed, he's gotten better since 2018. Let's put it there. He, Mar- I think, Mario, I think he, Mario Draghi might have been a better uh, test case of that, you know, a little more out of me. Yeah. <laughs> a little more, well, you know, he's Italian, so there's there's that. <laughs> but I, I do think when it comes to things like NLP, it's a question of the decay. And what I mean by decay is between when the word is uttered and transcripted to when the market reacts, what's the lag? And can you actually capture that? A lot of times the answer is no. So we actually haven't found a lot of utility in kind of real-time NLP because a real trader who is, you know, able to hit buy or sell as soon as they hear even like half of the word is going to be a little bit quicker than, you know, a program will be. Right. It's fascinating uh, area of research because I feel like, you know, you could read the text of, of a speech and think one thing where you could see someone recite the same speech with different inflection and, and sort of different emotion and, and come away with something something different. So it's a, it's a fascinating area to research, I think. Yeah. And, and, and I think there's a lot of words that especially central bankers use where almost their vocabulary is not a normal person's vocabulary. And as Fed watchers, like as economists, we kind of know what they mean yeah. when they say words um, like, you know, we're going to be humble um, or we're going to be, um, right. you know, like persistent, for, for instance. Like different contexts that could be very hawkish or very dovish. And a traditional NLP model is just going to say this is positive or negative sentiment. It's not going to be quite as good unless you train it. And this is, this is actually where we get into some interesting stuff. And I have seen this work where you train a model on a specific person. You can do that with central bankers. I actually had this idea originally back in, I think, 2011. And at the time, I wasn't able to really figure out how to do that. But I, I actually was going to train a model back then on um, Bernanke and, uh, and, and Draghi and say, okay, can we figure out based on their specific vocabulary, their specific mannerisms, if they're you know, being hawkish or dovish. But back then, it definitely didn't work. Perhaps in the future, as compute increases, we can you know, really isolate that. And, and that'll be a very interesting situation where you have actually algorithms making those split-second decisions, but we're not quite there yet. So speaking about this week, I was hoping you could sort of just go over briefly and, and very quickly your takeaways from the Fed meeting. And I wanted to ask you if you think the market is correctly interpreting what happened with Powell this week. I think the market is been having a really hard time get, getting its sea legs this January, right? I mean, just look at the action we experienced kind of right after the meeting. We had the, the really big drop. Then overnight, we started dropping further and then came back up. I don't think Powell said anything really dramatically new. In fact, you and I were talking about that um, right, right after the meeting. To me, it seemed like just the hope is gone, right? That was the initial reaction. Like, okay, the, the Powell put is out of the money, it may be completely off the table. And that was that initial like, oh crap, like we're, the training wheels are off uh, situation for, for investors. But then overnight, 
all of a sudden, you know, we got um, some, some, I guess, newfound uh, hope or newfound um, confidence that the markets can do well on their own. So if you think of like, again, with the trading wheels example, it almost seemed like, you know, you take your, uh, your kid, you kind of send them down the hill and they start really wobbly and they think they're going to fall. And then they eventually they start pedaling and they're like, oh, look at me, I'm going. But at no point did Powell say anything to me that was different, that was, you know, unexpected. They've done a really good job of telegraphing what they were going to do. And the thing that I always watch for is kind of the Fed speakers who are on the fringes, either the most hawkish or the most dovish, and see if do they start changing their tune. And they did. The most dovish Fed speakers um, and FOMC members got a lot more hawkish in the, you know, kind of weeks coming up to this meeting. So it shouldn't have been a surprise that the Fed said, yep, we're going to hike in March, we're going to end QE, and we're going to look at tightening. That's pretty much what I think everyone should have expected. Yeah, yeah. And maybe that's, you know, maybe they did, and that's why we saw such such uh, volatility be- before the meeting, you even, you know, uh, kind of priced it in. But, um, you know, Max, well, well, how are you thinking about the rest of the year now, um, uh, especially in context of, well, if, if uh, treasuries and stocks are selling off together, you know, uh, uh, that 60-40 portfolio maybe is not as diversified as it once was. Uh, you know, I think this is a, a issue with people have been talking about for a year, year or more now, but it, it, it certainly seems to be an urgent topic now. You know, or, 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 is it possible we'll see sort of a simultaneous weakness in, in both the bond and the stock market? And, and how, do you, how do you play that? Yeah. I, so first of all, the answer is yes. I think that's likely. That's actually my base case is that we will see weakness in stocks uh, for at least some part of this year. I, I do think we'll um, eventually be a little bit higher than where we started 2022, but uh, we will likely see a bull correction and we'll also see rates go up. And you know, the last time when rates were in a secular uptrend, I think Valdana and I weren't even born yet. So uh, <laughs> right, Mike- Ouch. Mike had been around for for decades by then. Uh, F- full disclosure, I, I was asked to uh, to give Mike some some zingers be- before this uh, yeah, show yeah, started. Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll try to get him in where where, where I can. Um, get a few more in. Yeah, I remember putting my money in the bank and earning something on it. Those were the those were the days. What what what's, what's a bank? Is that like <laughs> like like a, a a physical Ethereum wallet? <laughs> I would I would roll up the quarters and nickels and dimes in the little paper wrappers from my paper route and and ride my bike down and uh, on a little paper depo- deposit slip. And the interest was good. I, those were the days. Bring back bring back those, you know, 5% savings deposit accounts. Max, he's he's talking about the the early 1900s. Yeah, I I, I think it was kind of a turn of the century, yeah. uh, you know. Yeah. Uh novel there that yeah. that Mike was uh was spinning a little, a little Oliver Twist. Yeah, yeah. Artificial um, intelligence back then was like if you got the the cheat code to Donkey Kong. You know that that was uh, that was about as far as it went. I I, I do think w- with that uh, you may be careful what you wish for because I think we could get those five percent interest rates, but that also you know I believe came with like a twelve percent mortgage. <laughs> True, uh, that's rate. fair. So you know, fair point. Those of us who who locked in you know low mortgages uh, are are pretty happy probably uh, at this point. I do think we are going to see this secular rising rate environment come back. And that really posed a challenge, not only for 60-40, but the thing that kind of supplanted 60-40 for a lot of institutional portfolios, which is risk parity. And while, 
you know, risk parity folks will tell you that it's very sophisticated. Um, having run risk parity strategies before, I can tell you that generally speaking, it still relies on the crucial concept of bonds go up when stocks go down and duration risk diversifies equity risk. If that no longer is the case, you need to create something different. I think it's going to be really important to be more dynamic. It's going to be, what I mean by that is dynamic in terms of asset classes. So the concept of a balanced portfolio is really important. I think if we break it down to its really building blocks, it's a risk asset that can go up and produce uh, capital gains. And then a diversifying asset that maybe produces a little bit of income and steady returns, but primarily is there to hedge the risky asset. So what those two components are, I think that's going to be more dynamic going forward. And the new all-weather strategies are going to be playing with those concepts. So they may hold equities and bonds like current strategies do. They may also hold some amount of um, commodities like some risk parity strategies do, but they may at various points hold totally different things. They may actually hold some amount of crypto and some amount of you know loans and some amount of stocks. And those asset classes will have to keep varying. It's going to be a bit of a musical chair strategy. And I know that sounds a lot more complex, and it is, but the unfortunate byproduct of our uh, reality is things do get more complex with time. And if you stick to you know, your traditional approaches, I think you're more liable to actually uh, suffer long-term and not achieve your objectives as an institutional investor. Do, do, do uh, commodities play a role in, in diversification these days, or is that ship already sailed? Do we already miss that boat? I, I think they do, but again, it, it's tricky. You know, I, I think a lot of times people say, oh, commodities are a good inflation hedge. And in my research, I found that commodities are good as a hedge against inflation shocks, but they're not necessarily a hedge against steady rising inflation. And there's a lot of factors that figure into commodities, especially once you start actively trading around them, that uh, are very idiosyncratic. So, you know, OPEC doesn't necessarily care about your inflation hedge or your income story when they decide whether to raise or uh, lower supplies. And, you know, when people in OPEC cheat and actually ignore the supply constraints, then, you know, it creates a whole different situation. And, you know, then we have things like, well, if we get the infrastructure bill passed, that'll certainly send some commodities up higher. But um, if conversely, people stop, you know, spending as much on restaurants, that'll send other commodities down. So, so it's a more complex ecosystem. And I think looking at it at a very high level, like as just a single asset class is not a good idea. I think commodities are pretty idiosyncratic. So talking about the high level, I wanted to ask you about some maybe positive catalysts for the stock market, because the idea is uh, sort of that Powell and the Fed can move sooner and quicker in terms of hikes this year because the economic backdrop, backdrop is strong, right? And then the second part of this is, and I've heard Gina Martin-Adams talking about this on different interviews that she was giving this week, is earnings and how that might sort of help support stocks, at least in the near term. Yeah, I I think that the Fed starting earlier is good. There's obviously some folks who think that the Fed is starting late. And I, I personally don't think they're starting late. I think they're starting at the right time. And I think they're signaling like signaling it well. So kudos to uh, to Chair Powell on, uh, I think, navigating this about as well as possible. 
I do think that earnings are also going to be a very important catalyst. And it's a question of not so much what the street expects, but what investors expect. And we've seen a bit of a divergence there. So if we look at um, the most recent kind of, you know, Q4 earnings that have been released so far, I think um, generally speaking, beats were punished a little bit and losses were punished severely. And, and that's an important concept, right? So that means even the beats on average were not quite what investors expected. And that was my fear going into this reporting season is that the actual investor expectations were higher than what we were going to see. So then the question is, as we go further and as we get into, you know, like April, are Q1 expectations going to be more in line? That's going to be, again, like using that trading rules analogy, the market has to pedal on its own now. The Fed is not going to come in. I also think it's important to note that fate works both ways. And I'm talking about the flexible inflation targeting. So just as the Fed was comfortable with inflation running over the 2% line for a while, they'll be actually be comfortable with inflation running below that. So Powell made it very clear uh, when he spoke this week that he cares about the labor market and not asset prices. Asset prices inflating up was a byproduct of the stimulus that needed to be done to help the labor market. And I think investors need to really internalize that because I don't think that's a bluff. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Max, you know, Valdana has a blanket on her head for this podcast. I'm going to put my tinfoil hat on my head for a minute and uh, and tell me what you think of this uh, conspiracy theory of mine. Actually, it's not really a conspiracy theory. I don't really believe this is a conspiracy, but I, I could see sort of the, the monetary and political uh, outcomes uh, coming out like this. And that is um, Jerome Powell comes out this week. He, he's very hawkish. Um, we've obviously had this correction in the stock market. The year goes on. We get into the summer. We start lapping the comparisons to last year. And, and we see that maybe inflation has cooled off, uh, at least come off the boil, off the 7%. That allows Powell to get a little more dovish, you know, a little less hawkish, perhaps uh, in the summer, early fall, markets rallying again. Uh, by the time the midterm election comes around, everyone's forgotten about this ugly spell in the markets. And politically, it's beneficial to Biden and the Democrats in theory. Again, I don't really believe that's a conspiracy theory, but I could see it playing out along those lines. But I'm, I'm just curious, you know, what do you think of that scenario? And what do you think about the midterms in general? I know they're traditionally a, a kind of a weak year for equities. Um, 
you know, is that going to be the case this year? Is there is there political risk that we're going to have to deal with later in the year or or what? Well, I, I think the second part of your question is the easiest. Yes, <laughs> we will have to deal with political risk with midterms around. Uh, they are very important midterms. I, I, I don't want to be that guy who comes on, every, you know, every time there's an election, say this is the most important election of, of our time because, you know, it's always easy to make that comment. I don't think this, this is the most important midterm election of our time. I do think it's an interesting one uh, as, as a someone, you know, who's a bit of a political wonk and uh, also a market participant who trades on that political information. I, I think there's some unique features which are well known, which is one, you obviously have a very tight uh, margin and that margin needs to be maintained by the Democrats. And I think with that, you also have these, you know, two outliers in the Senate who need to come in line at some point. And I think they will. Because I think at the end of the day, they are going to choose their party and they're going to want to keep that majority because they know they don't have friends on the other side, even though they've uh, skewed pretty close to it. And so, you know, I, I think Manchin and Cinema are going to eventually support Build Back Better. And I think the timing of that is going to be important. We know that in Washington, a lot of times the theatrics are uh, geared towards giving you that like last minute conclusion. I think that's probably what's going to happen. I actually still think Build Back Better passes. That does, by the way, create a little bit of a uh, fiscal put in the markets that I don't think is totally priced in yet. But just how much that gives us is, is, is a bit of an open question. I think there we do want to be careful. You know, I wouldn't start overweighing on um, industrials and materials and financials just yet. But I do think those are the sectors that can do better from, from that. And, and beyond that, you know, there will be other related midterm theatrics that are, are going to start happening. I think there we're going to start seeing that more towards, you know, kind of early third quarter um, is, is, is when things will really start uh, kind of getting interesting from a political standpoint. Yeah. The drama builds, the drama builds. Max, I wanted to ask you about some geopolitical risks that you're thinking about, because obviously we have a bunch of stuff going around Russia and Ukraine. And so how should investors be thinking about that? Do you think that some of those risks are properly priced in and what potentially would, would an escalation mean for the price of oil and inflation and, and so on? Sure. So, so one thing that we know about Russia is they tend to be the most aggressive in the winter times because they control the heating power for Europe. Uh, and uh, when Putin goes on, and you know, this is one, one area where it's nice to have uh, been born and raised in a country because I can actually listen to Putin in Russian speak uh, to Russian pu Russian public. And he uses very colorful language. <laughs> Let me just put it that way. One that I, uh, I'm not going to say on the podcast. Uh, but, but he does talk about how he can basically freeze all of the... Uh, people in, uh, in Europe. And, and there's some truth to that. And that's why you never see very meaningful sanctions come out. Now, th the biggest concern for Putin, of course, is that Ukraine somehow becomes a uh, part of NATO. So that's, the, that's really the, the gamble and the risk. I do think that a conflict there is likely, unfortunately, in terms of a kinetic conflict, because you just have this powder keg on both sides. And even though it's cold, it's very dry in, in the sense that anything could spark it off. I think for the markets, that's not going to be as big of a risk as what's going on further out east. Um, and there, I'm really thinking about China and Taiwan. So last time, 
China flew their jets uh, 950 times over Taiwanese airspace. It's definitely a very strong signal. I do think Taiwan has perhaps the best defense forces of any small nation, and that defense force is called TSMC. <laughs> the Taiwanese semiconductor company is probably the best deterrent yeah. because it is so vital to all other nations around the world that no one can actually afford to risk China taking over uh, TSMC. And for that reason, you know, even as their kind of saber rattling gets louder, I still think it's a big tail risk, but it is also a tail risk that I don't think we can fully discount. So that to me is kind of the biggest geopolitical risk. But to take your question and look at it at a little higher level, what I think is driving a lot of geopolitical risk in the last, yeah, I'd say like five years or so, is deglobalization. And that's a trend that's been pretty secular. We've seen a lot of businesses move from just in case inventory, sorry, from just in time inventory to just in case inventory. And what I mean by that is we, it used to be that um, you could realize much better margins if you just ordered whatever you needed. You had one, typically one plant, usually in China, or you know another kind of low labor cost country that you'd get all of your goods from, and that made for good margins and it made for quick um, inventory stockings. You didn't need to build up a lot. Well, now, since trade wars really began and this deglobalization movement began, you've moved to just-in-case inventory where you have a factory in China, for instance, and then maybe a second factory in Vietnam that's able to take on additional capacity if necessary. So that means companies are no longer as dependent on a specific country. And while that can sound good, it also lends a political or the politicians more leeway to create more strenuous ties with those countries. And that's where, you know, trade wars, as they progress, can actually um, exacerbate because companies have created hedges, if you will, um, against those situations. And, and that, to me, is a more concerning secular trend. Fascinating stuff, Max. You know, I, it's such a great point about uh, uh, Taiwan Semiconductor, especially given the state of the, the chip supply chain these days. And also, I didn't realize Putin, you know, said the said the quiet stuff out loud like that. I thought, you know, I, I know it was always assumed he could freeze everyone out if he wanted to. I didn't realize he actually talked about that. That's pretty, that's interesting. Tighten up your straitjackets. It's time for the craziest things we saw in markets this week. Vildad, I think it's that time. It is that time. As I said, I've tailor-made my craziest thing for the one and only Vildana Hyrick, but I want to hear yours first. What's your- I, I appreciate that after my tough uh, Bill's loss, but yeah. I want to first say, you and I never explained the blanket thing to our listeners. So I want to give a shout out to our producer, Laura, who makes me a new hide under blanket sometimes for better sound quality. So that's that's what we're talking about here. I have a bunch of blankets over my head. Yeah. Sometimes I just hide under them, you know. Yeah, I know you do. Because I'm I feeling know. it, you know, yeah. yeah. That, that's fine. That's fine. I think that's okay. Yeah. Well, okay, so first, or I guess second after my, my little blanket thing, uh, I want to give a second shout out to Ben Emmons of Medley Global Advisors. He's a frequent guest of the podcast, and he actually wrote something into me that I wanted to read out loud. It's not exactly markets related, but it's money related, so I'm, I'm going to allow it. He sent a USA Today story, and the headline is, Woman finds out she won $3 million lottery prize after checking her email spam folder. So thank you, Ben, for sending that in. 
I love that. And I think it is markets related. I think lottery tickets are a fine investment uh, choice, you know? Yeah, sure. It's kind of a tail risk fund. I'll, I'll allow it. I'll allow it. Yeah. And so that's just a reminder that if anybody else has seen anything weird and wants us to know about it, you can give us a call in the Crazy Things hotline. That's 646-324-3490. Leave us a voicemail, hit us up on Twitter, and maybe we'll play or talk about your weird thing or crazy thing on the show. And then for mine, I have a story courtesy of another pod friend. It's Crystal Kim. She was on a couple weeks ago, and she wrote about the FOMO ETF the fear of missing out ETF. I don't know if you saw this story, but this fund buys meme names and other sort of popular high-flying stock. Yeah. Except, except right now, it has so many dull names in it that its own manager said the strategy puts him to sleep. <laughs> and the, the FOMO ETF right now is almost 40% in cash. Its biggest <laughs> holding is Chevron. It has Campbell soup in there. And then I was checking it out and, and I look for GameStop and AMC and neither one are part of this fund anymore. That is pretty fascinating. Well, they're, they're not, no fear of missing out on the, the drops in those stocks, I, I, I guess. That's, that's pretty good. 40% cash, I guess. 40% cash, yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Fear of uh, missing out on uh, capital preservation, I guess, is the, uh, the theme this week. All right, Max, that's pretty good. What, what do you got for us? Have you seen anything crazy? I mean, so so whenever I look for something crazy on on short notice, I I tend to go to the metaverse now. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, you'll you'll never uh, stop short of kind of fun figures. So, so I'll start I'll start with that, and then I'll drill down to the actual thing that I thought was crazy. They just released the data for the fourth quarter of virtual land sales in metaverse. Three hundred thirty million dollars. Wow. So. Um, that was interesting. And, you know, we, we, we know that housing inflation has been going on in the real world, but uh, Sandbox virtual real estate went up <laughs> 500% last month. Wow. Two lands in the center land went for over $2.3 million. So um, I, I don't know if that means you need, that's just for the land or you, you build on them. And if you have to hire like virtual developers to, you know, come in and, and build stuff. But it uh, seems expensive to me but but the but the thing that really got me was someone bought a yacht in sandbox so it's not land it's just really an a virtual yacht that i guess you can sail around this virtual world do you guys have any guess for uh, how much they paid for this virtual yacht uh wait i think i saw this i want to say half a billion well if if that's mike's guess i'll go with that too because i did not see this story and I'm notoriously bad at guessing. Did you say half a billion? Yeah. It it was well that 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 would be a lot. Um no, it was half a half a million. Uh it would okay. be closer. So $650,000. Huge difference. So uh yeah. That's only off by a few zeros there. Yeah. Um so pretty affordable then uh you know, I I guess in, yeah. in, in that Yeah. Sounds framework. like a bargain now that I yeah. Actually cheaper than I guess a real yacht, so relative to, you know, buying Two point four million dollars for a plot of land. Maybe that's uh, what's that's what we should be doing now is buying uh, NFT yachts in uh, the metaverse. Max, are are you locking in low rates in the metaverse, buying, purchasing land over there? I don't know. I mean, I I, I kind of feel like someone does need to do that. I I'm gonna train the AI to uh, figure out how to arbitrage <laughs> different land plots, and maybe we can become just a virtual landlord. You know, um, I don't know. Didn't someone pay up? 
pay up big to be like Snoop Dogg's neighbor or something like that? Did I read there that? was <laughs> there was a couple stories about that last year. Um, yeah. So so yeah, and you know it, it's funny to me. So when I was just starting out, like writing code, I was one of this thing around. This is this will now date me, Mike. So I'll I'll, I'll join you in the old guy <laughs> camp. There was a thing called Vermal or virtual reality markup language. It was it was kind of started like in the mid nineties. And it looked a lot like the metaverse. It never took off. No one cared about it. It was kind of silly, but you could create these three-dimensional virtual worlds by just writing like kind of very basic code. Well, I mean, maybe, you know, that should have been something I pursued further. I don't know. Bring, but, bring uh, it back. Yeah, yeah. Get that d dust off those old uh, floppy disks, I guess. I see kids in the, in the coffee uh, shops now, and they're all wearing like 90s clothes. And I feel like, hey... That's my generation. You can't wear ripped jeans like that and band shirts that, you know, weren't around uh, or haven't been around for like 20 years. That's pretty good. Well, the only coding I ever did was as a kid, it was basic. And it'd be like line 10, print Mike is cool. And then line 20, <laughs> go to 10. And it would just scroll around. And then I'd save it onto literally a cassette tape on my, uh, it was a Radio Shack, I think, uh, computer ad. Anyway, I've really dated myself there, boy. All right. As loyal listeners will know, you're you're what's known as a Potterhead, not a pothead. I do know some potheads, but a Potterhead. I love Harry Potter. A big fan of of Harry Potter. So J.K. Rowling's first book, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, is heading to auction. It's a very special edition, uh, one of just 500 hardbacks printed in 1997. Uh, so it's very rare uh, gem. In fact. Her name is listed, I believe, as Joanne uh, Rawlings, not even JK. So that's going up for sale. Now, I, I want to put you two to the test. Uh, there's something else going up for sale, or went up for sale, actually. And that is the hat Melania Trump wore to her first state dinner when her and President Trump had uh, the Macrons from France over for dinner. That sold at auction. Um, unfortunately, it sold in Seoul, uh, the, the Solana blockchain currency uh, that, that's not doing so well. So, tell, so here's the price is right for you, Voldana. Which had a higher value, the expected value of the Harry Potter uh, hardback, hardcover, or Melania Trump's big floppy hat that she wore to a state dinner uh, with, with the leaders of France uh, and his wife? Give me a value on each. Okay. You know, I told you I've been, I've been watching Antiques Roadshow recently because I'm so bad <laughs> at guessing this. So it's like preparation for me. And I, I see all the things that come up on the show and I try to guess and I'm always way off. Anyway, I'm going with Harry Potter. I have to. I know what the hat was supposed to go for, I believe. I think it was something like 500 thousand dollars i honestly could be misremembering that but it was part of an nft collection which you forgot to mention it was like all a big package i believe but i'm going with harry potter okay i'm gonna i'm gonna keep a, a poker face here max uh as a a student of political culture what do you think philosopher's stone or melania's hat great question um so we got to get some AI. I want an AI model on this stuff. If you can get an AI model on my alternative assets, then we're we're going to be billionaires. There is a way to do that. Um, again, you, when, when you guys have me on next time, I might be able to uh, share <laughs> a, a few more insights. So I'll just leave it as a foreshadowing. But, but for now, I'll, I'll, I'll keep my uh, you know human uh, brain working. So I think 
that if we're not hedging for the fact that it was sold on Sol, then I would echo what uh, Valdana said and go with Harry Potter. I would think that you can get seven figures. There's enough Potter heads out there who've done well. And uh, I think they could bid that up. Conversely, despite how successful uh, Trump's uh, SPAC was initially, I don't think there's as many folks who would want the hat and also know what an NFT is. Yeah, it's it's tricky. You have to sort of, uh, you know, gauge the uh, the enthusiasm of Harry Potter fans versus uh, fans of the Trump. Both very uh, enthusiastic fan bases, I would say. Um, so I will say that Melania's hat was a was a disappointment. She wanted, I think, two hundred fifty thousand dollars in Seoul. Of course, Seoul crashed. She only got $170,000 for the hat, but the Harry Potter book is only expected to sell for 30,000 pounds, so about $40,000. Wow. So, so, but I kind of agree with both of you. I think the Potterheads uh, will show up in force, and that's just, you know, uh, the hat already sold. The, uh, the book has not sold, so uh, very well could be, could be a, a push, but um, as it's far as expect- It's time for me to bid on it. As far as expected value, I, Valdana, I think you should bid on that one uh, and, and see how it goes. Yeah, it's time for me to yep, yep. bid it up. Yep. All right. With that said, I think that is all the time we have. Max, always uh, a pleasure to catch up with you and good luck with the new venture. We definitely are going to have to catch up again and have you back on and, and see how, it all, uh, how it's all going. Thanks so much, guys. Always uh, great to catch up with you as well. Thank you, Max. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, website, and app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at Reganonymous. Vildana Hyrick is at Vildana Hyrick. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. And thank you to Charlie Pellet of Bloomberg Radio. What Goes Up is produced by Laura Carlson. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.